that they ever follow the watch, but I'm going to put it there just in case. I have my timekeeper set out in the audience for me. Let me know when my time is up. So I come prepared. I usually try anyway. <laughs> oh. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Debbie, and I am an alcoholic. My group is the Woodlands Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. If anyone is in our area on Tuesday night and is looking for a meeting, we start at 8 p.m., and uh, we it's held in the rec center in Woodlands, and we're more than happy that you can attend our meeting. So if you're in the area, come see us. It is an honor and a privilege to be your speaker this Sunday morning, as well an honor to share the podium with the other speakers. The speakers have been awesome. So awesome that, in fact, last night I was telling Brenda, you know, I got here early on Thursday and I got to listen to Wendy. And then I got to listen to Scott and I got to listen to Chuck. And I got to listen to Cease, and I got to listen to Miss Linda, and I said, Brenda, I'm just a little girl from Manitoba. <laughs> she said, go get him, girl, you can do it, I know you can. <laughs> so I had to take a couple of meditations this morning, two of them, because you guys all know me, maybe some of you don't, but I'm talking to my home people here. Oh, no. <laughs> Anyways, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the committee for asking me to speak this morning and making sure that Lyle and myself were so well cared for this weekend. He loves to be pampered. <laughs> <laughs> the conference has been a success so far, and thank you, Gordon and Debbie, for asking me to be your closing speaker. There have been moments in the past year when I've asked myself, what on earth was I thinking? And then Gore told me beforehand, you know, a week or so ago, that I'd better be a good speaker, because he has to thank me. And it only took me a second, and I said, Gord, when I'm good, I'm darn good. <laughs> and I would be remiss if I didn't thank the old-timers, my friends, for coming out and supporting me this morning. You know, I, I, I don't do this on my own. It's my Heavenly Father that gives me the courage and the strength to come up here in front of all of you. And I just want to say thank you to most of the old-timers from the Eldest Duty Group and Steinbeck that came out in full force, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. I usually start out with a joke to get things going, and by hearing you laugh, it helps me not to be so nervous, because if I tell you I'm not nervous, God will tell you I'm not telling you the truth. <laughs> and it goes like this Dear God So far today I've done alright I haven't gossiped And I haven't lost my temper And I haven't been greedy or nasty And I haven't been overindulgent or selfish And I'm really glad about that But in a few minutes I'm going to get out of bed And from then on I'm probably going to need a lot more help <laughs> My prayer this morning is that by sharing my life with you, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, maybe, just maybe, if you're wondering, am I an alcoholic? Could I really be an alcoholic? Is my drinking really that bad? Or if you've been sober a while and you're going through a rough time and things seem pretty dark, you might remember something I say today and it'll help you in that time. And know that you can get through this and you don't have to pick up that drink. You just stay close to your higher power and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. They'll see you through it. My sobriety date is January 22nd, 1989. My family and I have celebrated 13 sober Christmases together. And to that, I owe my life to AA. When I came Thursday, it wasn't the best of times for me, because you see, we found out Wednesday night that once again, God in his wisdom, and it's proved it so correctly, that if we don't stay close to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we don't practice those 12 steps, somehow we're going to think that we can take that first drink. And it took one of our members home Wednesday night 
This is a life and death program, ladies. You don't succeed in it. They die when you think you can't do it. We're going to the funeral this afternoon at 2 o'clock for that young man that could not stay sober. Please, if you're new in here, get a sponsor and come to meetings. And you ask why I'm so emotional? Two weeks ago, I got a call from my sister, and she wanted to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I said, are you ready to do that, my girl? I can take you. If you take my hand, I'll walk with you. And I took her to the action group meeting at 6. And she caught on fire on Wednesday at Back to Basics, and I thought, my God, she's going to make it. Two weeks later, she called me, and she said, Debbie, I don't think I can do this. I just had a drink. I don't know. It, it happened at lunchtime. I just thought I'd stop by the liquor store and pick something up. I'd done it before I even realized it. And that's my sister. She had to go back out one more time. And one more time, I have to say, please, God, when she's ready, let her come back. Please let her come back. I lost my brother in 1991. See, he had cirrhosis of the liver as well. We buried his wife the next year. So don't tell me that it doesn't, doesn't, it's nothing to be laughed at. Don't tell me that. Alcoholic nerves will kill you. You have to stay close. That's my emotional part for this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I'm here to tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. I was born in Winnipeg, Osses, Manitoba. I am a Soto Indian. I'm child number 12 of 13 children. My father passed away in the spring when I was born, and my mother gave birth to me in September. And uh, I know today that when God closes one door, he opens another. And when I was a toddler... I drank lye. Now, way back in 1957, 1958, medical hospitals weren't the way they are today. And I burnt the inside of my body really bad. And the doctors had given my family no hope. And I got to meet the taxi driver that took me to Winnipeg, the Children's Hospital. He said, my God, girl, you are a living miracle. That baby that I transported to Winnipeg, I could not believe that God would have something in store for her. And that's why he chose to save you. Because I looked at you today and you are a beautiful young woman. And back then he drove me in and we went to Children's Hospital and there was some young surgeons there and they did a surgery. The first one of its kind. I got to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, I've gone down in the medical journals. I am a survivor of that surgery. I can talk today. They told my mother I would never talk and I would never have children. I have two beautiful girls. I surprised them all. And you know what? It was God that touched. God did the work. Not anybody else. God had, had, had a journey in store for me. Now what happened when I had that surgery is, is I couldn't go home. I couldn't go up to northern Manitoba again because I needed constant, constant medical care. And you know what? The children's aid, what it was back then, they found me a home. They found me a mom and dad, a loving one. I have been with my parents since 1959, and I consider them my mom and dad. And I met my natural family when I was 27 years old, and I got to see people that I looked like. I got to see that they had children just like me. <laughs> I got to see that they had skin color just like me and my mother is a beautiful lady and I know that my mother made that greatest sacrifice. She had lost her husband the year before and now she was going to lose her baby. But by doing that she gave me the greatest gift of all. She gave me life. So now I'm in Winnipeg and I'm growing up and I have my natural family. I have four brothers. I have one younger sister. That's the one that I tried to carry the message to. And I grew up, and I grew up smart. I did really well in school. I surprised everyone. My mother is an English war bride. She worked really hard. I know all my P's and Q's, and I know how to be a lady, thanks to my mom. And um, I just kind of went, went out whatever I was going to say, but anyways, we'll try it again. Um, I did well in school. And you know what? I didn't really notice that I was different from anybody else until I was 
a teenager. People called me those names. I know what it feels like to be called those names. My skin was brown. My hair was long and black. My eyes were brown. I have I had a hole in my stomach so I never wore a bikini because the feeding tube was there. I had scars on my neck and on my tummy. I just was not what my four older brothers brought home. You see, they're white. They brought home their blonde, blue-eyed girlfriends that looked gorgeous and she keeps getting to me. I'll wear it for Lyle today, but nobody else. <laughs> and I knew I was different, so you think I'm an alcoholic? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did I think so? No. I grew up very well disciplined, and I grew up a caretaker. You see, my mother and father, they loved me. My mother and father opened up their hearts to a little Indian baby that was in critical care. My mother and father opened their doors to over 200 Native special needs children in their 28-year career with Manitoba um, Children Services. And 200 children they took in. Do they have big hearts? You darn right. Oh my God, I couldn't have asked for a better mom. And that was God. He closed that door and he opened it and he gave me a family. Now I went to school, I finished, I went on to Red River. My self-esteem, I always worked really hard. You see, I had to prove to you, because my skin wasn't white, that I could do the job three times as, as well as anybody else that could. So I never had a trouble finding employment. And um, today, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a gift. My employer loves Alcoholics Anonymous. He gives me time off when I have to attend a conference like this. He uh, allows me five, ten minutes when I get a call at work and somebody wants to talk. I just, you know, give him the eyeball. I've got to take this call and he lets me do that. And you know what else he likes? He knows that when I call in sick, he knows that I'm sick. And I'm not, I don't have a hangover or anything, and he loves this fellowship. So was I lucky enough to get that job? Yes. But that was God just kind of coming down and saying, there you go. Because, you know, when I went for my interview, I said, you know, I just have one little character defect. <laughs> I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and I go to meetings, and I've been sober 10 years. <laughs> I can do the work if you just trust me. And uh, he did. He took me on. I run one of the busiest clinics in Western Canada. And anybody that comes into our clinic will let you know that we treat them well. I listened to Feast yesterday when he was talking about treat others as you would like to be treated. And in my morning meditation, that's how I do it. I ask, may I treat others? I like to be treated with dignity and grace. You heard Wendy say that I had a man sponsor the first time I came in. He was my sponsor for the first 10 years. Ladies and gentlemen, he did marvelous things. I got a lady sponsor because you know what? I saw her and I liked what that lady had. And I can tell you, I sure missed out on a lot because today I know about the grace of a woman and she taught me that and to that I will be forever grateful to Rosemary, my sponsor, and she's here today. You know, what a beautiful young woman. It's so true that God taught me in the beginning, be careful girl when you're out there because when you're in an AA meeting club room, you can be Mrs. AA or Mr. AA, but when you're out there, what kind of message are you delivering to somebody? Do you think that they might want what you have? Do you think that that copy of the big book is a good one? You had better behave yourself when you're out in public. And today I carry my head high because of that gentleman. That gentleman, ladies and gentlemen, my first sponsor, celebrated 35 years sobriety this January the 4th. When I came to Claude, and um, it was a bad night down with 21st, <laughs> I heard people say that, gee, if I just had one drink, that was my last one, I would have gone all out. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I went all out <laughs> that last time, and um, it was awful. I had double line cabins and beer chasers, and I don't remember leaving the hall, and uh, the next the fight started on the way home, and I knew I was in trouble. And uh, I prayed to God that it would be over soon. And about 3 o'clock in the morning, the shotgun went off. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't know at the time that you could put more than one shell. And my girlfriend begged me not to go outside. 
And I couldn't understand why I couldn't, but I knew I was probably safer staying inside than going outside, and I chose to. Otherwise, you'd have a different speaker here tonight, because that's what happens when the rage comes. And it came that night. And the RCMP intervened as they did. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen, the whole time I lived in southeastern Manitoba, whenever I needed the RCMP, because that's how my relationship was with my first husband, they came. They never once said they were too busy. They always came. And they came that night, and they asked if they could intervene, and they did. And they brought him out of the garage, and he was laughing at them. He said, I never meant to hurt her. I wasn't going to do anything with it. I just wanted to show her. Ladies and gentlemen, I get myself into a lot of trouble when I say, I'll show you. <laughs> time and time again, I paid for that mistake. Time and time again, when I took that first drink and lifted it up and told myself, this time I will not get drunk. This time it won't happen. I'm going to stop. And every time I did it, I got drunk and I got beat up. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, in 14 years of sobriety, my mother and father have not received a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning saying, Mom, I got beat up this one more time. My mother and father believe in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they're there. They have never seen me take my cake, but I know their love is there. And every time I take a cake, I remember. And every time I take a cake, I remember what I did to my children. My God, how do I make restitution to my children? I stay sober one day at a time. And I compiled 5,110 days clean and sober. how it happened when I came to Claude and um, I asked him to show me how you do it and I, I carry that tradition on today because um, he gave it to me and uh, he said if you take my hand girl and walk with me I'll show you how it's done and he was true to his word because you see ladies and gentlemen I only drank sometimes I still had everything, although it was falling apart, I still had everything, and um, I wasn't underneath the bridge, and I didn't wear a sports coat, trench coat, and uh, I didn't drink in the morning, and I never got tagged, never had a DWI, and uh, I only drank sometimes, so it kind of made Claude's work all the more. And he said, if you take my hand and walk with me, girl, I'll show you how it's done. And he did. He took my hand and we walked through the big book. And he said, I have a question to answer you, and you had better answer it properly, because until you do, I cannot sponsor you. And that was, what lengths are you willing to go to stay sober? And that morning, I was sick, and I was tired. And I, I said, Annie, God, I can't do this anymore. Either I'm going to end up dead or he's going to end up dead and I can't put my children through this anymore. And I want what you have. You see, Claude, I look at you. You have a good job. You have your family back. Your family loves you. And I want what you have. And he said, good, because there's a few rules you have to follow. And I had to call him every day to keep in touch. We went through the big book. He said, and you must do the 12 steps. And every time I balked at doing them, he would say to me, what length are you willing to go to stay sober? And I would do that step. Because I thought that maybe I wasn't that bad an alcoholic. But if you read in the big book, it talks about the chronic alcoholic. And maybe I didn't drink every day. And maybe I didn't pick that drink up in the morning. And maybe I only had a few but it's what I did. It's what happened when I drank that made me a chronic alcoholic, when I had to admit to my innermost self what I said before. I repeated that process over and over and over again. And each time I repeated that process, I took a little bit of my children down further. When they say, Alcoholics sometimes say that they've never hurt anybody, they just drink and that's it. That's not true, ladies and gentlemen. I saw it in the eyes of my daughters when I had to come back and say, I'm sorry. 
and uh, Mama won't do it again, and I would build up their hope, and I would build up their hope, and I'd stay sober for a little while, and I would build up their hope again, and maybe it took six months, and it would come all crashing down again, and I saw their eyes go back to hurting again. We went through the big book, and um, one of the sentences that makes so much sense that kind of just started me thinking, you know, maybe I have a problem. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm in here. And it says, <clears throat> then there are the types, entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, and friendly people. Uh, that's me. I'm like that. I'm like that before I take the first drink. I can, I can understand that. And then Claude would say, do you see yourself now? I said, yes. I can start to see. And then the phenomenon of craving sets in, and I want more. And what happens when I want more, usually by about the sixth, eighth drink, I know I'm beautiful. I know I have blonde hair and blue eyes. I know I'm okay. And by the twelfth drink, made me read in the big book and made me put it into how a lady would read it. Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde comes out about 11.30. <laughs> I don't know where she came from. I didn't ask her to show up on the spot. But she came out and she was craving four fights. And that's what happened. I usually got it. <laughs> so I had to admit that to God. Yes, okay, I can understand that. He said, you see yourself? Now put yourself in the fire engine part when you read that in the big book. And I uh, read it too. <laughs> it keeps getting worse each time. And I could understand that. And he said, see? And then he made me read in the big book where it talks about this time. This time it won't get me. This time I'm only going to drink a little bit. This time I'm not going to drink the fire water. I know today, ladies and gentlemen, why they call it fire water. It gets you downtown a lot faster. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not a beer drinker. I drank my life. <laughs> and uh, I had to admit that to him. And he said, we just about got you, girl. And uh, he said, if you read on, and he made me read on. And it says, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And I'm there. I had to think about that one. And then he made me read that part in the big book, you know, where it talks about ladies being gone beyond recall in just a few short years. <laughs> I didn't take long to get here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I didn't take long. And it says, and this is the clincher for me, and it always will be, and I thank my Heavenly Father for that, because uh, it made sense. If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if, when drinking, you have little control over the amounts you take, you are probably alcoholic. And I read that and I said, you know, Claude, I get to be one of you guys. I get to be along today because that's me. You know, every time I lifted up that drink and I said I was going to try and control it, every time I did that, something happened. And I said, you mean I'm actually an alcoholic? And he said, yes, girl. And we started on this road and he made me do the steps. And he's no time sponsor. He made me do steps one, two, and three <laughs> right away. And I understand today why he made me do that, because, you know, sometimes people don't take them right away, and uh, sometimes they tend to go back out, and he didn't let me. He made me do steps one, two, and three right away. He said, because, girl, the environment that you live in, something could happen, and you might need somebody, and they might not be home, and you have to rely on that higher power to see you through that crisis. And he was so true to his word. And we did step one, two, and three. He got me my pen and paper that we heard last night and made me write it down. And I said, ah, I didn't think that long. I don't have that many character defects. Write it down. Today, ladies and gentlemen, when I get ladies to sponsor, I tell them, write it down. It will change your life. By doing a big book study, by hanging on to those old timers, I, I, you know, I can't imagine what it would be like not to have an old-timer in the clubroom because I truly, truly cherish them. But by hanging on to them and listening to them do the step four 
and how Claude explained it. You just, it's like peeling an onion. Do a layer, do a layer. But start, though, you gotta start because alcoholism will get you if you don't. And he made me start, and he made me start to realize that, yes. You know, ladies and gentlemen, when they say in the 12 and 12, the word blame. That got me. <laughs> I blamed my parents. I blamed not living with my natural family. I blamed my husband, my first husband, which was the alcoholic. I blamed him, you know. all You would drink too if you lived in my situation. And um, <laughs> the blame part got me. And I had to work on me. And uh, sure enough. Claude said, when the after test comes, just hang in there and go to extra meetings. And he made me go to more. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, I'm a couple years sober. And I haven't lost too much. And uh, I'm uh, going, going about my business in a usual manner. And um, going to meetings, listening to Claude, going him every day. In 1992, my first husband, I've been sober three years now had come up to me one day and said, I don't love this new Debbie. I want the old Debbie back. And therefore, I have an ultimatum for you. And uh, I've been raised up to know that your family is really important. And he said, this is how it goes. One, you can have AA, but you can't have us. Choose. You have AA, or you have a family, but you can't have both. And I went to Claude, and I cried, because that was, you're asking me to leave my family. And I love sobriety. Because you see, when I stay sober, I don't get punched out that much anymore now. My mouth knows when to quit. And um, it was a choice. And uh, Claude said, I cannot advise you how to make that decision, but I want you to know, girl, that we will be behind you in whatever you decide. And he let it go at that, and he left me with the decision, because it says like that in the big book. And uh, it gave me a couple days to think about it, and I love being sober. And on September the 18th, 1992, I packed my bag and I left my family and I left my girls and I died when I walked away from the apartment because I didn't know what was going to happen and uh, I would find out that God was trying to teach me a lesson and the lesson is if you let go and let God he can do so many infinite things if we just let go and let him have it. I didn't have my children, and I fought with God. I couldn't understand why I am the sober alcoholic in this relationship. Why can't I have my children? And I moved into this little bachelorette apartment on Christmas. December the 18th, I moved into this little bachelorette apartment. You see, because my first husband wouldn't let me have my children. If anybody, if I was around 80 people and stuff, I had to be out on my own. And um, I found this little dingy apartment. I, I didn't have to pay the damage deposit if I cleaned it. <laughs> I didn't need a remote control because you know, I could just reach across the <laughs> But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? It was mine. <laughs> and I only left with a suitcase, so I didn't have nothing. So when it came time for the guys to bring me to my apartment, and, and I wanted to show them it, you know, December the 18th, 1992, on the boulevard with furniture, boxes, stacks, anything I needed was there in that pile of stuff. So don't tell me that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work, because it did. I had more than I needed to put into that little apartment, <laughs> but it was mine. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen, I was free. Claude, <clears throat> Claude would uh, bless me with this because I hold it true. Because of the community where I come from, when I chose to leave my children behind, 
People berated me. People would not serve me in restaurants. People did not choose to be my cashier at the grocery store. And Claude said, whatever you do, girl, you are a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you carry your head high, and you carry it with grace. Because, honey, they have no idea what you went through behind those closed doors, and you have nothing to be guilty of. And I said, thank you, and he gave me that gift. And I continued, I didn't have to walk across the street when I saw somebody else come down there. I could continue to walk, and if they walked right by me, so what? You didn't know. You didn't know the hell I went through behind those doors. And why I was so free when I left. And now I could go to meetings. And you know what the old timers did to me then? <laughs> they stuck me in service. <laughs> My one friend, Lou, the only man that could tell me that he loved me and mean it, and I know he didn't mean it in that context, and he still loves me today. He said, now, you know what? We have an opening for an alternate GSR. You can either go to the bathroom while we do the election, or you can sit here and we'll do the election. But whatever, you're still going to be the alternate GSR. <laughs> I say. Now that opened up my life, because when I went to an assembly, and I saw all of Manitoba there, Wow! And there, there's more alcoholics all over And I was on fire for service. And I was talking to him at the other city banquet on the 18th of January, and I said, Lou, did you know that that would happen? Did you see that, that I didn't see that? And I went on to become GSR for the Steinbeck group, and then, uh, touche, when I had left my marriage and I took my suitcase with me, my first husband had said a really de derogatory remark, and um, it kind of, I mean, I was low enough, but um, if he wanted to make me even lower than low, that, that did it. And um, he had said, you're nothing but a dirty Indian. No man will ever want you, and you will have to come back to me. And... Um, I left with that. And I know today, through the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, through the power of a creator much greater than myself, that my first husband said that out of anger. And he wanted to hurt me, and he did. But it was to rise above that. And I asked Claude, could I say this prayer? Because you heard somebody else say, they prayed out a prayer. And I says, do you think there's a man out there, God, for me? Do you think there's a man that just might find me beautiful? Do you think there's somebody? And I could only pray it once. That's all I'm allowed. And I left it with God. And in January 1993, this man came to the Otter City Banquet. And I'd seen him. I knew he was in service. And I liked the way he walked. <laughs> And I liked the way he carried himself. And I knew he was sober. <laughs> and um, when you're in the Steinbeck group, you go to work. So I was on ticket chair that night. And I asked Lyle, let me one ticket or two, Lyle. He said, just one. I left the cat at home. <laughs> <laughs> and then... He was sitting with his friends for supper, but during the course of the evening, they all went home, and he was sitting by himself. So I told him, well, come on. You can join our table. You don't have to sit here by yourself. And he came, and we danced, and then we had the last dance, and I looked into his eyes, and I said, you know, Lyle, Steinbeck has a really, really good breakfast on Sunday morning. Now, I can bill it you out, you know, because the guys won't let you stay with me. <laughs> but I can bill it you out so you can join us be a part of. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, Lyle's just a little bit slow. <laughs> he didn't know that I was hitting on him until he got to the Super 8 on the perimeter highway. Just got by there when I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and by the time he realized that he didn't get my phone number. <laughs> and he had to walk to get that phone number because the guys didn't want to get rid of me that soon. <laughs> Oh, yes. God blessed me with a man that loves me. God blessed me with a man that tells me I'm beautiful. God blessed me with such a kind-hearted man that I have no fear of him. And I love him today, and I tell him every day that I love him. And in 1995, you see, when I left in 1992, I was really sick. As well, that spring I'd been diagnosed with a tumor in my brainstem, and um, when I left the marriage, I was sick, and I was taking this medication, hoping it would make it better, and instead it made the tumor keep on growing. And uh, I fought with the doctors for a couple of years because it it, it kept making me sick, and I kept trying to tell them that, and uh, finally they listened to me. And I had to wait a year for that medication to get out of my system before I could have the neurosurgery. And uh, Lyle had asked me to marry him, and um, I wanted to be well. So we had the surgery done in June, and I know that God works miracles, because Lyle's a heavy smoker. And when I went into the operating room at 7.30 in the morning, and I told him that I loved him before they took me in, and uh, he still hadn't heard anything by 3 o'clock that afternoon. And uh, he never went for a cigarette. He just stayed and prayed that I would be okay and I'd come back to him. And uh, 3, 3.15, 3.30, they came and told him I was okay. Now, that's a long time, ladies and gentlemen, not to have a cigarette. And I tell Lyle today, you know, you can do it if you really try. <laughs> and I wanted to be well for him for our wedding, which was in August. Anybody been to an AA wedding? They're fun. <laughs> we had a ball. Man, I got to be the Cinderella I always wanted to be, and I was. <laughs> oh, that was fun. And he said, because he's a construction worker, we don't take holidays in, in summertime. We take them in winter. And he said, honey, out of all the places, where would you like to go? And I said, I'd love to go see the ocean, honey. I know now today why my dad never took us there. We went there, and I didn't want to come home. <laughs> it is beautiful there. They don't get 40 below weather like we do. And their daffodils come up a lot sooner than ours do. <laughs> and he took me to this ocean. And um, I had a reason for going. And uh, when I went, I asked for five minutes by myself. And I asked, you see, when you take the hand of your sponsor and you do the steps in order... Slowly but surely, my God went from God to Father. And now when I'm at the ocean and I have my five minutes by myself, it went like this. My Heavenly Father, I offer you, Lyle. I offer you my grandson. He already, I had already given my children over to God. He already had them. And I said, you know, Heavenly Father, we need your strength. We need your courage. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I was starting to get sick once more. And uh, the surgeon said I'd probably have to come back and see him again. We would have another date. And I, we, we asked for courage and strength. Whatever you have in store for us, please, Heavenly Father, grant us courage. Grant us strength. Be with Lyle. Be with my grandson. Bless him. And you know what? Be with Lyle, because he's a hermit. <laughs> and as I walked away from the ocean, there was only one set of footprints. And Lyle and I have hung on close to that prayer, footprints in the sand. It took four years. I finally was able to find a job in 2000 where I could work full time. That's the one where my employer loves AA. Five years of not being well because of the neurosurgery, because of always 
you know, having the headaches and having them come when you least expect it. But five years, we decided we would take the herbalist route. Ladies and gentlemen, we took the herbalist route. I went back to the doctors, and I continued to amaze them. They can't believe that I do what I do. And they know that someday I'll come back and see them. But for this time, God's given us the green light. I say that's the power of prayer, the power of knowing, and just trusting in a Heavenly Father. Lyle and I had dreamed of retirement. We dreamed of sitting on the front porch in our lawn chairs. I still don't have a rocking lawn chair. I'm going to have to do something about that. But we dreamed of doing that. And after that prayer at the ocean, you know what, where I gave it over, and um, we live today, God taught us, it's only 24 hours that we have. Can we pack life into 24 hours? You betcha. Some of the miracles that have happened, oh, they're many. You know, you stay sober, they're many. One of the greatest, greatest miracles is here with me this weekend. I get to sponsor a lady, and I get to see the fire start, and I get to see that smile come into her life. And I get to see the hope on the kids' face this weekend. They had a ball last night at that dance. They just thought that was excellent. And she takes home with her what some of the other speakers planted in her heart. And what an encouragement she is. Because we can't keep it if we don't give it away. And I bless my Heavenly Father and I ask Him to bless her. And let's just walk together. And some of the other ladies I look after are here as well. And that's my prayer, you know, is, is that step 12, we always carry the message. I always ask, may I be a tool for you today, dear Heavenly Father? Wherever you need me, let me be there. And, um, and that was the hurt when I came here. It kind of left. And then being able to see that happen yesterday. When you uh, sober up, life happens. Not every day is always going to be rosy. <laughs> we have trials and tribulations. January 2000, my daughter, my youngest one, had gone for her physical. And uh, she phoned me and uh, she said, Mom, they found a lump. And I have to go for some surgery. And Mom, will you be with me? And I said, you darn right I will. And my boss gave me that time off. And he was really good. And he gave me time off again when they didn't get all of that lunch. And then he gave me time off once more to be with my little one. She was 18 uh, when she had her baby. Her younger, her son at the time was only a year old. And we went to see the doctor when we thought they got it all. And um, I was there with her. And he told her, you have cancer. And I just, I pray it was me. Why, why not let it be me? Why her? Why her? 2001, I, I, I went to extra meetings and I prayed for strength. And I prayed for acceptance of this situation. Because until you do, you will always struggle. And I prayed for the acceptance. And by getting the acceptance, I was able to give her strength. And I was able to love her. And we went for the radical surgery in 2001. And she carries a terrible, terrible scar on her back. But heck, I told her, it's just a scar you get to live. What the hell? <laughs> March 2002. She's now three months pregnant. And we're back at the cancer care clinic. And Dr. McIntyre says, you can go home and have your baby. Come back and see me in another year. You're cancer free. I'm just wondering how I'm doing for time. It's just about getting there. Okay, we'll just get on the road a little bit. 
<laughs> I like to hear some laughter, too, so I want to tell you this. You know, when Lyle and I we were married, and I never ever thought of this until they pronounced us Mr. and Mrs. Do, and uh, my mother said, you know, Lyle's always been free of commitment, <laughs> for one. But then they, she said, you have such a cute name. Your name is Debbie Do. <laughs> I like that. So sometimes you're Debbie Dare, Debbie Dawn, but now you get to be Debbie Doo. <laughs> so God does have a sense of humor. <laughs> be careful what you pray for. <laughs> and poor Lyle, you know, the man that's always was afraid of commitment, afraid of hurting me should he get involved with me. He was blessed with two mother-in-laws. <laughs> He got two more girls in his life, and now our family's grown from three girls to three son-in-laws to one dog, two cats, five grandsons. <laughs> and when when Grandma's money went out, we go see Papa. <laughs> I have to say thank you to the old timers in our group because they uh. They took away that shame that I carried with me, and they let me become a lady, and they let me grow. And uh, that man that told me that he loved me, I would move on to things when I moved to Woodland. I got to uh, be the GSR of the Woodlands group, and then I got to be the DCM, District 13, the Interlake. And uh, Lyle asked, he said, at the election time, what are you going to let your name stand for? What are you going to do? And I says, well, you know, the old timers taught me, honey, that, you know, I just put my name in the hat. If it comes out, okay. And if it doesn't, you know, God has something else in store for me. I don't get to pick and choose which position I'm going to take. That's up to God. Ladies and gentlemen, I get to be your alternate delegate for Area 80, Panel 52. He couldn't have given me a better job. greatest gift, the greatest miracle in AA is love. Ever play with the grand with the grandchildren? You know about that love. Oh wow. They just you know, when I say my meditation and I ask God to watch over my grandsons and I call them my little men and I say, you know God, they put a smile on grandma's face when I think about them. And I say thank you for that gift because they've never seen grandma drunk. And I say thank you, my Heavenly Father, and do I hold it close to you, betcha. One of the things that people say, <clears throat> there's two actually, and I'll do the first one. Are there miracles in AA? Yes. Lyle and I were allowed to attend one big miracle. And that happened in Area 85, Northwestern Ontario, September of last year. At that assembly, it was their election assembly. Peter presented the assembly with a copy of the big book, which holds about five, six tapes, I believe, translated into the Ojibwe language. Oh my God. He said there's no hope. Going right there. <laughs> What's the cost of staying sober? One hour a night. Go to meeting. Go for coffee after. <coughs> Lucky if you're good. Three nights a week. Four maybe. <coughs> if you're like Lyle, we like to go to lots of meetings. In between, you talk to your sponsees. What's the cost? Do people really notice? Last year, we always loved to attend the Winter Conference. What difference are we making in people's lives? Last year, Lyle's father passed away at this particular Winter Conference weekend. Last year, we lost him. And you know what? The greatest gift that Lyle gave his father was he had 10 years of sobriety. His father got to see his son sober. His father got to see his son 
become a family man. His father got to see his rightful place in the community taken. And what was the cost? One hour a night? Four times a week? Sometimes five. That's how we dated. We always went to something AA. We always stayed close to the fellowship. And I know that Dad's up there in heaven watching us over this meeting today. And I know that he's watching because all of a sudden I got a lift during reading chapter (laughs) 5. And I'm there, thank you. Thank you for that. I wouldn't have had those gifts if I hadn't stayed sober, if I hadn't worked the program. As your alternate delegate, I get to be the grapevine rep for Area 80. For those of you who've noticed this weekend, the August issue of the Grapevine holds the story of the Dreamcatcher. We're giving them away free, ladies and gentlemen, so if you haven't got your copy, come get one. In it is the story of the Dreamcatcher, where a Canadian Indian from Alberta carries a message to someone else that's hopeless. And uh, do we make a difference in our kids' life? I've seen strength in you when I needed you to help me. I've felt the joy of your acceptance and understanding. I've known the warmth and comfort of having you there, always willing to give whatever I needed from you. I've seen so much love in you, a love that is unconditional. Thank you, Mom. I love you. That was for my youngest daughter. So do we make a difference? You betcha. Um, I've always been kind of a renegade, and uh, I like to close my talks when I, when I close with a song. So if you'll just bear with me, I ask you to keep an open mind. When you hear the words of that song, how can you not but open up your heart and your hands to our Creator, our Heavenly Father? How can you not? And I will close with a, a saying that came. I always have two big books because, unfortunately, they have a story in the fourth book that's not in the third book. So I have to carry two books now. And it's called uh, Listen, Listen, Listening to the Wind. And this is the story. I just want it, to, it's the last paragraph that kind of makes sense. Uh, my life is filled with honesty today. Every action, word, prayer, and 12 steps is an investment in my spiritual freedom and fulfillment. I am in love and proud to be a Native American. At an AA meeting on an Indian reservation, I heard the words, sobriety is traditional. I stand at the top of the sacred mountain, and I listen to the wind, and I have a conscious daily contact with my Creator today, and He loves me. Everything is sacred as a result of the 12 steps and the love and recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll say thank you after the song is over, but please, just keep an open mind, and um, I'll come back to you in one second. That was Buffy St. Marie Starwalker. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to say thank you very much for listening. Thank you for letting me share my life with you this morning. Thank you for being here. God bless you. Thank you.